Okay, today we are going to be in Acts chapter 5. And we're going to look at another long section, just like last time. And I've decided to call this message, Preaching That Can't Be Silenced. Preaching That Can't Be Silenced. So we're going to look at Acts 5.17 all the way through 42, through the rest of that chapter. Lord, we, we just want to come with humble and open hearts this morning to hear from you. Lord, you say in your word, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Lord, give us ears to hear today. Open up our ears, Lord. Make them receptive to truth. Show us, Lord, the, the good example that we find in these apostles in this early church. Lord, let us mold our lives after that which is good and right. So come now and speak to us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. W.A. Criswell, who is the famous pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, he once made this statement, Men can hound, harass, condemn, persecute, and even imprison the church, but they can't stop its almighty power. All of the fire in the world can't burn it, and all of the water in the sea can't drown the holy assembly of God. I like that. Likewise, one of the early church fathers, Tertullian, when he was responding to the rulers of the Roman Empire, he made this statement. He said, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed is the blood of Christians. Of course, that famous statement is, um, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That probably came from, from his statement here. But as we look at Acts chapter 5, what we're going to find, the central idea is that the dogged tenacity of the apostles in their preaching and teaching concerning Jesus. Not just the fact that the apostles preached and taught, but their dogged tenacity. They would not give up in the midst of persecution. They would not wave the white flag and go away. They just kept on doing what Jesus told them to do. In this chapter, the word speak occurs two times. Teach, or a derivative of teach, occurs five times, and the word preaching occurs once. So in this chapter, we have eight times where the preaching or teaching ministry of the apostles is referred to. And they just continue to preach and teach in the face of great opposition, doggedly determined to obey Jesus Christ no matter what it costs. And that's the example, the specific example that I see in this chapter that would, would be great for us to take to heart. So this morning, we just want to meditate on this preaching of the apostles that could not be silenced no matter what was done to them. And we're going to look at the opposition, the content, and the tenacity of the apostles' preaching. Okay, so let's begin with the opposition. Let's look at the opposition to the apostles' preaching. And we'll begin in verse 17. But the high priest rose up along with his associates... That is the sect of the Sadducees. And they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. And I'm just going to stop there for a moment. I want you to notice the very first word of verse 17. But. Just like last week, we noticed the word but. Starting verse, or chapter 1 verse, chapter 5 verse 1. 
but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. It was showing a contrast between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. Now here there's another big contrast between the power of the early church Right In verses 12 to 16, we find the apostles healing, casting out demons, miracles are taking place, and it says in verse 14, all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. So this great move of God was taking place in the early church. So there, we have that on the one side, and on the other side, we see the hostile reaction of the religious leaders against them. So there's the contrast. Here we, we find all the people of Jerusalem being impacted by the apostles' ministry. But we find some people rising up to counterattack against that move of God. And who were they? The high priest. He rose up along with his associates, which were the sect of the Sadducees. Now, do you remember anything about the Sadducees? Do they not believe in resurrection? That's correct. And they also don't believe in spirits or angels or miracles. They were the naturalists, you might say. They might, in our day, we might look at them as theological liberals who, do, who reject the supernatural. Uh, they believe in morality, but they don't believe in the supernatural. So the Sadducees were rejecting and opposing the work of the apostles. And it's easy to figure out why. right? What was the central piece of all of their preaching that we've seen in the book of Acts so far? What do they keep going back to over and over again? It's the resurrection of Christ. Peter preaches the resurrection and in every sermon that he preaches, even when he's brought before these men and it's just him before the Sanhedrin, he talks to them about the resurrection of Christ. And they didn't believe in that. And so the apostles were spreading what they believed was truth, but the Sadducees were opposed to it. It also tells us in verse 17, that they were filled with jealousy. That was the same thing that motivated the people who crucified Jesus. In Matthew 27, 18, it says that, they were, that Jesus was delivered up because of envy. The religious leaders were stopped, were, they were losing their hold on the common people because Jesus was gaining in popularity. And the same thing is happening here in the church. The apostles and the church uh, is gaining in prominence because of the healings and the miracles God is doing through it and the priests and the Sadducees and the religious leaders are losing their hold on the common people. You've, you've got you've to understand that in Jerusalem there was, a, uh, there was a great percentage of the people that had already come to Christ. It's really hard to get an accurate population statistic for Jerusalem in the first century. I tried and I googled it and looked at all the different perspectives. People say there was anywhere between 25,000 and maybe 125,000 people in Jerusalem during that day. But 3,000 men are converted on the day of Pentecost. That number comes to 5,000 in Acts chapter 3. We find here, all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. So, if there's 5,000 men, there's probably 20,000 if you count women and children. And that's before you get to chapter 5 and you have these multitudes constantly being added. So you could have, I don't know, 25, 50,000 people associated with the church in Jerusalem. That could be like 50% of the population of the city. I mean, this is amazing what's happening in Jerusalem. It's just incredible. 
And so jealousy is what is prompting them and motivating them to stop the spread of this teaching about Jesus Christ. I also want you to realize that the opposition has been intensifying. Now go back in your mind to chapter 2. There was a little bit of opposition, but it was simply mockery. They were mocking the apostles. They said, you guys are just full of new wine. We don't believe what you're saying. You're just, you're just, you're drunk. And so whatever's coming out of your mouth, you can't believe it. But that wasn't very strong opposition. When you get to chapter 4, it's not just mockery. Now the two apostles are arrested, jailed, and threatened not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. When you get to chapter 5, all the apostles are arrested, jailed, threatened, and flogged. Do you see how it's building chapter after chapter in intensity? When you get to chapter 7, Stephen is actually put to death. He's the first martyr. And when you get to chapter 8, it's not just the leaders or the apostles that are being arrested and jailed. It's the entire church being persecuted because it says Saul ravaged the church, entering house after house, hauling them away and putting them in prison. So every chapter it seems like it's getting stronger and more violent in its opposition to the preaching about Jesus Christ. But in spite of that, the church didn't back down. The apostles didn't back down. Look at verse 18. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. So we find God sending an angel who opens up the gates of the prison. He takes them out of the prison and he delivers God's word to them. Now why did God do that? Did God send the angel to deliver them from prison for their comfort? In order that they wouldn't have to suffer anymore? How do we know? Because, yeah, he gave them a message that's going to continue to cause them to be persecuted. He says, go to the temple and preach the message of this life. If they did that, they're going to face the same opposition again. And that, that tells me something. I, I think we've got it backwards. We tend to think God is most interested in our comfort and protecting us from pain and suffering and harm, right? And we pray about that all the time. Lord, protect them. Don't let them suffer. But God wasn't that concerned about their, them having to face opposition or persecution. In fact, he gives them a message that's going to lead them into further persecution if they obey it. So I'm convinced that's not the highest thing on God's priority list, is to keep us, keep us comfortable. What God wants is, he wants instruments through whom he can carry out his purposes in the world of establishing his kingdom and uh, causing his kingdom to go forth throughout the world. It's also interesting to me that sometimes God delivers his people from danger. He does that here for a while. He does that with Peter when the angel goes and delivers him from prison. On the following day he was supposed to be executed but the angel delivered him. We find that also in the Apostle Paul when he goes to the island of Malta. He's bitten by a poisonous snake but yet he throws it off into the fire, he's unharmed because God protects him. So sometimes God intervenes supernaturally and protects his people. But sometimes he doesn't. For example, James. He was beheaded. He wasn't released from prison like Peter was. We also find Stephen. Stephen was executed by stoning. So 
why does God sometimes protect his people and sometimes not protect his people? The answer is, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. He, all I do know is that God is wise and he's good and he must have some good reason for what he's doing. But I don't know what it is. And I don't know how the Lord makes those decisions on who's going to receive what in this lifetime. But it, yeah, that is just interesting to me how the Lord some distinguishes in what he does. Look at verse 20. Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. So here's the word of the Lord through an angel to the apostles. Go, stand in the temple, and speak to them all the message of this life. So they received a direct command through an angel from God that they are to continue to preach and speak. So who are they supposed to obey? The message of the angel or the message of the Sanhedrin? They have a choice. They're going to have to obey one or the other, right? They chose to obey God. In fact, Peter will even say that in verse 29. They had to obey God rather than man. And the message that they were supposed to preach was a message of life, this life. Sometimes when the Bible describes the message that we are to preach, it says, preach the gospel. It calls it the gospel. Well, here it calls it the message of this life. So life. Doesn't, doesn't everybody in the world, if you were to talk to them, wouldn't they say, yeah, I, I, I want life. That's a good thing. But confronted with the truth of Christ, uh, oftentimes they withdraw and move away. So it's a message of life. We were all born in spiritual death, born in sin, shaped in iniquity. We were born under the wrath of God, and God had to deliver us by delivering us from a state of spiritual death and bringing us into a state of spiritual life through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. We call that regeneration, being born again. We went from a place of spiritual death to spiritual life. So the apostles are to proclaim the whole message of this life that we have in Christ. It begins with the new birth, and that's not where it ends. It continues on with living a brand new kind of life. A life that, that is supernatural because we are indwelt by God's Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Look at verse 21. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. When did the angel give them the message to go to the temple and preach? During the night. During the night. When do they go to the temple? When do they obey the message? Daybreak. In the night they got the message. Well, no one's at the temple during the middle of the night. So they wait until the crack of dawn and they're there at the temple as soon as light begins to stream into the temple grounds and they begin preaching right away. I love that. They obeyed quickly and immediately when the Lord gave them the command. They did not put that off. They obeyed him. It reminds me of when our kids were little. We had what we call first time obedience. And so 
we, we taught them that when we gave them a command, they were to obey immediately. If they didn't obey immediately, they were disobeying. And so there would have to be some repercussions if they did not obey us. So we tried to train them to do immediate obedience rather than hemming and hawing and dragging their feet and complaining. We wanted them to do first-time obedience. Well, that's, that's what the Lord wants from us. When he gives us something from his word, he wants us to put it into practice right away rather than making excuses for why we're not doing it. Somebody once said that the greatest nation in the world is procrastination. I thought that was... <laughs> because it, it, it is a common problem that we fight with. So, is there something that the Lord has told you, shown you from his word that he wants you to be doing that you haven't been doing? We need to to follow the good example of those people who immediately went to the temple and began to preach right at daybreak as soon as they could. Now when the high priest and his associates came, verse 21, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. So try to get this picture in your mind. All of the bigwigs, the, all of the most important and people of authority there in, with, in the religious realm within Jerusalem, they're all there. They've all gathered, the Senate, the council, and they gave orders for these apostles to be brought to them. So they're all, this august assembly is waiting for the apostles to be brought before them. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. And they returned and reported back, saying, we found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Imagine that. <laughs> the, the gates to the prison, they're locked and the, and the guards are outside, so they expect they've got to be inside. How do they get out if the, if the doors are locked? But they go inside and nobody's there. And then it says, Verse 24, as all this is taking place, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words. They were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Now that's the exact thing that they had commanded them not to do. Right? Back in chapter 4. Do not speak or preach in his name again. Well, the angel goes, tells them to go do it. They obey. They go right back to the temple it's, it's kind of comical. I, I think that when Luke wrote this, he, he's probably having a good chuckle. <laughs> he recounts the situation that's going on. So the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue preaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, there's a couple things here we need to notice. Number one, the enemies of the apostles are saying, You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Here's 12 guys. Jerusalem's a whole city bigger than Rancho Cordova. You know, probably 50 to 125,000 people. There's a lot of people in Jerusalem. These 12 guys had filled the city with their preaching and teaching. They don't have microphones. 
<laughs> uh, they don't have church buildings. They don't have internet or phones or TV. or They don't have all the modern conveniences we have to get a message out, but yet they had filled the entire city with their preaching and teaching. That should be a lesson to us that we can do far more than we've already doing. Wouldn't it be great if our enemies said, hey, you guys, stop it. You're, you have filled Sacramento with your teaching about Jesus. So I'll just throw that out there. That's a great example to us, I think. And then they said, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. What are they talking about? I think what they're saying is, you, you're laying the blame or the guilt for this man's death upon us. And really, that was true. Because every time Peter preaches to them, he mentions that they had put their, their Messiah to death. Let me just give you some examples. Like back in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Peter says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Or chapter 3, verse 14. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead. Or chapter 4, verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. And then Peter is just about to mention this again in chapter 5, verse 30. He's going to say a couple verses from where we're at. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. So over and over and over again, he's emphasizing the fact that you folks are to blame for killing Jesus Christ. You are responsible for that. So they said, hey, you intend to bring this man's blood on us. You're trying to put the guilt of this. Yeah, he was. He was very straightforward and, and honest about that. Yes, it, you are guilty of that. And it shouldn't... It shouldn't be something that would bother them because remember when Jesus was before Pilate? All the people cried out, His blood be upon us and on our children. Yeah. As though they, would, they were accepting the responsibility for putting this man to death. So let's, let's think about what we've seen so far, which is the opposition. We've seen the opposition to the preaching of the apostles. Uh, what would that mean for us here at the bridge? Well, just think about the very name of our church, the bridge. The bridge is a metaphor which describes our mission. A bridge is a place that connects two different people, right? You, you take a bridge to go from one side to another side, so it connects. Well, the church is to be the agent of reconciliation between God and man. He's given us his commission and mission to go out and to, to help people become reconciled to God. Just as the apostles were doing by preaching Christ and that, ex, and, and that culture. And we should expect opposition from the world if we're serious about that. If we're not feeling any opposition from the world, maybe it's because we are not being agents of reconciliation. Maybe it's not because we are boldly preaching Christ. Does anybody here feel like you know, you're being persecuted because of your boldness for Christ? Well, I'll be honest, I'm not feeling that. And it's probably because I'm not a very bold witness. I feel it from my family. Big time. From your family? Mm. Okay, well that's, that's to be expected, isn't it? 
If you're doing what's right, that's to be expected. People are not going to like, even though we preach the message of life, which sounds like a beautiful thing, people are not going to like it if you preach the truth. Like, let's, let's boil down the essentials of, of the message that God has called us to preach. Number one, God is the holy and sovereign creator. He made them, and therefore all people are accountable to him for their words, thoughts, and actions, because they're created by him. Two, all men are fallen, sinful, and depraved. Thus, they will not and cannot please God without faith. Third, Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God, who bore in his own body on the tree the full measure of God's wrath against sin. And four, God commands all men everywhere to repent and to trust in Jesus Christ, which means they're going to have to lay down the weapons of their warfare against God, and they're going to have to surrender to King Jesus being willing to do whatever Jesus commands them to do, that's where the, the rub really is. Because people do not want to surrender their own independence and autonomy. They don't want to surrender their will to the will of another. But the gospel call commands men to repent, which means to turn away from the life of independence from God and turn to a life of trusting God. And if you truly trust God, you surrender to do His will. So that's... that's the core of the message that God has called us to bring to people. If we start proclaiming the truth, we're going to face opposition. We'll be called narrow-minded, intolerant, bigots. And if people end up doing that to you, what will your response be? Is that going to cause you to shut your mouth, quiet down, Stop t speaking about Christ to other people? It shouldn't. It shouldn't. We should be doggedly determined to continue to give the message out of Christ um, until the very end. I think what occurs to me is that we are afraid of being rejected by other people. And so in order, in order to speak the truth, you have to be willing to be rejected. Because you will be by a lot of people. They're not going to want to hear what you have to say. I, I'll share a little story with you, which I was so excited. I, I took the dogs down to uh, play at the park the other day. And I was shooting off, I have this little gun that shoots a ball and they go catch it and bring it back. And there's this other kid over there flying a remote control airplane. And I said, hey, that's cool. And we got into a discussion about this airplane. And he, before, we, we've talked maybe five minutes and it was time to go, so I was getting ready to go. And he said, oh, before you go, I always like to ask people this. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? This is a 15-year-old kid. And I said, yeah, actually I do. But your, your boldness was really encouraging to me today. How, when, when, when's the last time someone, especially a teenager, came up and asked you that question? <laughs> it made me like I should have been witnessing to him, you know? <laughs> Yeah, he was raised in a Christian home, but it had never taken root till about, until he was about 12 years old. And he was really on fire for the Lord. I'd love to see that. But, mm. Okay, let's... Yeah, I did. I told him I was a pastor, and I said, you've really encouraged me to be more outgoing about my faith when I talk to people. So he did. He did encourage me. Okay, let's look at the content of their preaching. So we saw the opposition, right? We've seen how they were opposed. Let's look at what 
their preaching actually included. We get a little synopsis of that in verses 29 to 32. There's a, a mini message from Peter here. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He's the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. I'll just mention a few things that I see here about the content of what Peter preached. Now remember, he's preaching to the Sanhedrin. The highest ruling body in Israel. <laughs> they, they take these 12 men, they stand them in the midst of the 70, and this is what Peter says. First of all, his message is all about God. You know, notice that because in 29 he says, we have to obey God rather than men. And in verse 30, he says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus. So, at the, at the essence of what he believed and preached, it was about God. Secondly, it focused on Christ, because in verse 30, he says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel. So it's all about Jesus. It's all about God the Father. It proclaims the work of Christ, Christ was raised from the dead, meaning he had already been crucified. So the, the death is implied, the resurrection is explicit. And then he says he was exalted to heaven. So there's the ascension to the right hand of God. And not only that, but he gives repentance. So you could boil his message down to three points. God raised Jesus from the dead. God exalted him to his right hand as the king over all God's creation as the savior, sovereign savior, the rule, royal ruler, the Lord and savior, and from that exalted sovereign position he gives repentance and forgiveness of sins. And lest we think that Jesus only grants repentance to Israel, if you go a little bit further in the book of Acts, to chapter 11, verse 18, one of the apostles preached preaches and says, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So the message is, Jesus is reigning to save. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. All authority in heaven and on earth have been invested in him, and he now is building his church by calling out a people for his name. So let's make some application here from the content of Peter's preaching. First of all, the apostles preached that Jesus not only accomplishes salvation, he also applies it. Now, why do I say that? Because in verse 31, Peter says that Jesus now, because he's the prince and a savior, he grants repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He grants repentance. In Jesus' crucifixion, he was a suffering savior, but in his resurrection and ascension, he's a sovereign savior. In his death, he accomplished salvation. In his resurrection, he applies salvation. How does he do that? By directing the Spirit of God. And when the, he directs the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God comes. First, he begins to convict us of sin, and then he actually changes our nature and gives us new life by indwelling those people. So on, in one sense, Jesus' work is finished. 
We talk about the finished work of Christ. His earthly work is finished, but his heavenly work still continues because he's at the right hand of God interceding for his people. He's still ruling over all creation to bring about the salvation of all God's chosen ones. So that's the first lesson I see. Jesus not only accomplishes salvation by his death on the cross, but he applies that salvation by directing his spirit to, to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, Jesus is not only Savior, but he's also Lord. Peter calls him a prince and a Savior. So a, a prince is a person of royalty. He's the son of the king. He's invested with the king's authority and power. Jesus is a prince, the prince of peace. God the Father has given all authority in heaven and on earth into his hands. So Jesus is not simply a savior. Well, he is that, but he's not only that. He's also a prince. He's also the king of kings and lord of lords. And when we neglect that truth and simply emphasize the fact that Jesus is Savior, we can be guilty of preaching a message of cheap grace. Basically meaning that you can have your sins forgiven while continuing in your rebellion to God. You, yes, it's true that Jesus is the Lord, but you don't have to really accept Him as your Lord. You can just believe in Him as your Savior and you're in. You've got your fire insurance. Even though your, your life has not changed, you have not repented of sin, you're not living a holy life. It doesn't matter because you've accepted Jesus as your Savior. Now, let me ask you, where in the Bible does it tell us that we are to try to get people to accept Jesus as their Savior? Or to ask Him into their hearts? I mean, those are phrases that we've invented. That's modern evangelicalism. We've invented that, that way of doing evangelism. It's not found in the Bible. The Bible... Yeah, the sinner's prayer. Yeah, just get, just get them to say this prayer, and now you, you tell them, now you're a child of God. Welcome to the family of God. Never doubt that again. Well, what right do we tell people not to doubt something? The Holy Spirit is the one who gives assurance of salvation. We can't give it. God gives it. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. It's, it's His job to do that. So we are to preach the message of truth and call men to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God then does the work and He will assure them of salvation. But you, you can't look at Jesus as like a pie that you slice up into ten pieces and say, okay, I like this piece, I don't like that piece, I'm going to accept Jesus as Savior but I'm not going to accept this part about be, Him being Lord. He, he's the whole pie. <laughs> and when you get Jesus, you get everything about Jesus. So true faith includes repentance. Faith is a turning to God, but you can't turn to God unless you turn from your old life of wickedness and rebellion. Saving faith is the kind of faith that actually results in works. If there are no works, you should doubt whether you have the real, genuine kind of faith the Bible talks about. So that's another truth we need to take away. A third one... Jesus not only requires repentance, he also gives it. He does require it. Do you remember the apostles preaching? I'm trying to, it's Acts 17. That God commands all men everywhere to repent. 
because he's fixed a day in which he's going to judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So God commands all men everywhere to repent. But that's only half the story. The Bible also says that Jesus gives the repentance that he requires. Where do I get that? From verse 31. Jesus is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel. But what does it mean to grant something? If you get a grant to go to a college, what, what is that? Do you have to pay it back? No, it's a grant. A grant is a gift. It's a gift. You see, it's, I believe it's a false teaching to tell people, Jesus has done everything you need to accomplish your salvation. Now you need to contribute that one extra thing to get in, and that's repent. You need to repent of your sins. Well, it is true that they need to do that. But it's not true that we have to summon that thing up from within ourselves as our contribution to the process of salvation. Because it's granted. Over in 2 Timothy chapter 2, when Paul writes to Timothy, he, he mentions all of this. And he says in verse 25, With gentleness the servant of God is to correct those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. If perhaps. That tells me that God doesn't do this same work for every person in the world. He doesn't grant everybody repentance leading to knowledge of the truth. Perhaps he might, perhaps he might not. We don't know what God's purposes, his secret purposes are. But again, Paul says that God grants it. It comes to a, a person as a gift from God. So Jesus requires repentance and Jesus also gives it, thank God, because in our spiritually dead condition we wouldn't be able to come up with this repentance that is required. So we shouldn't look at Jesus as a weak, frustrated Savior, weeping because so few people will let, them, let Jesus save them. He's not wringing his hands in despair, wishing someone of their own free will would take advantage of the salvation that he made possible for them. He's a sovereign savior in heaven, ruling over the world that he's created, applying the salvation he purchased to his own chosen ones. That's the biblical view of Christ today. Jesus is not in the sinner's hands to do with him as they please. The sinner is in Jesus' hands to do with them as he pleases. That's the actual truth of the situation. So we can learn all of that from Peter's preaching about Jesus Christ here. Okay, let's, let's look at the third aspect of their preaching, the tenacity, the tenacity of their preaching. Verse 33, but when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They were cut to the quick when Peter preached them the truth about Jesus Christ. And they intended to kill them. Now they didn't kill them, but they wanted to. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. 
For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census, and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it's going to be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. So, Gamaliel is the one who is able to persuade them not to kill the apostles. Gamaliel was the grandson of the famous Jewish rabbi Hallel. You might have heard that name. So he's the grandson. You remember Paul the Apostle actually studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He, he was a very well-known and respected man within the Jewish community. So here, Gamaliel retained a cool, level head. Everybody else is freaking out. They're enraged. They're wanting to kill him. He says, wait a minute. Let's think this thing through. Do you really want to do that? His advice seems wise, but I don't think it was the wisdom of God here. I think he, he displays some wisdom, but it's the wisdom of an unsaved man. Because the truth is that many cults, which are not of God, have multiplied greatly. He seems to say, if this is not of God, it's going to come to nothing. Well, what about the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons? Millions of followers in each one. Um, they're not of God, but yet they have... They didn't come to nothing, they've come to something. They're spread all around the world. So I don't think this is gospel truth that Gamaliel shares, but it's enough uh, of a cool, level-headed wisdom to get them to calm down and decide, okay, let's not put him to death, let's do something else. Verse 40. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. Now I was interested to find out what it meant to be flogged. Because Jesus was scourged, the word flog and the word scourge are two different words. Flogging usually in its occurrences in the New Testament has to do with being beaten and scourging has to do with being whipped. You remember the cat of nine tails with the glass and the shards and the end of it that would just open a man's back up. That's what Jesus endured. The flogging probably was not that. It was probably being beaten. Uh, it's the same word that we have in Acts 16 when Paul and Silas were brought before the magistrates and they were beaten. So perhaps with a cane or some other instrument, they were, they were actually beaten, but they weren't actually, had their backs ripped open like a Roman scourging would do. So the first wave of persecution, chapter 4, included a prohibition to speak in the name of Jesus and a warning. What did the apostles do? They prayed to the sovereign Lord for boldness to go on preaching. The second wave of persecution comes... And it includes a prohibition to speak in the name of Jesus and a beating. What did the apostles do in response? They praised God for the honor of suffering for Christ, which is verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Wow. Folks, what do you do with guys like this? How do you stop them? How do you silence them? <laughs> so if you bring him before the council they preach to you like Peter did 
If you threaten them, they hold a prayer meeting and they ask God for more boldness. And then they continue preaching. If you imprison them again, an angel delivers them. When they're brought before the council again, they start preaching again. When you beat them, they rejoice for the honor of suffering for Jesus' name and they continue preaching. You can't stop them unless you kill them. And if you kill them, God raises up somebody else to take their place. That's why I like chapter 5. I like to call this the unstoppable church. And this is what, this is what we need to aspire to. To be unstoppable in our dogged determination to do what Christ has commanded us to do. No matter what stands in our way or who opposes us, we must obey God rather than men. Men want to get us to stop. They don't like us to go out and talk to people about Christ, but we don't have orders from men. Our orders come directly from the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So there's nothing you can do to stop people like this. There's nothing. Verse 42, Every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The very thing they were commanded and threatened not to do, they just went right on and kept doing it. What to God that he would give us a fraction of the zeal and the determination that we find here in this early church. So what will cause our witness to be unstoppable? I want to give you three thoughts here. Number one, you need God to act on your behalf. We find him doing that when he sent an angel to deliver them from the prison. The Bible says if God is for us, who's against us? God is on our behalf. God is for us. We already know that. Secondly, when God is obeyed rather than men, that will cause our witness to be unstoppable. Notice in Peter's message from 29 to 32, he begins his message by talking about obeying. He ends his message by talking about obeying. In verse 29, he says, we must obey God rather than men. In verse 32, God has given the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. Now, by implication, what is he saying about the religious leaders? They are not obeying God. They don't have the Holy Spirit. No wonder when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. Yeah, so Peter's insinuating that the religious leaders were not obeying God and they did not possess the Holy Spirit. So what causes our witness to be unstoppable? God acts on our behalf. God is obeyed rather than men. And third, when suffering for Christ is counted as an honor. I think that's what has enabled multitudes of Christians, thousands upon thousands of Christian martyrs to be willing to die and to face terrible suffering. I can't imagine anything worse than to be burned alive. But that's what happened to so many believers down through the centuries. They considered it an honor to suffer for Jesus Christ. In fact, they're giving a level of honor in the book of Revelation. You see these martyrs. The full number of the martyrs has to come in before Jesus Christ returns. I think there's going to be a level of honor that these martyrs are going to have in eternity because they face the ultimate suffering to die for Jesus Christ. So let's consider it an honor. If you, if you receive opposition or persecution, consider that an honor to you. 
I think it was William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army. They would go out into the streets of London, they would get their brass bands to go, and they would play and try to get a crowd to come. And somebody sometimes would come up to William Booth when he was preaching, and they'd spit on him. And one of, one of the members of the church would come up there trying to wipe it off of him, and he'd say, no, leave it on there. That's a badge of honor. Leave it. See, he, he, he was taking on the same example that we find here with these apostles. It was a privilege, it was an honor to suffer for Jesus Christ. So, I believe the message of the Spirit in this chapter is God has called us to bear the message of Christ. Let's do it. Let, let's not be lazy about this or apathetic about it or, you know, let's be intentional. Let's come up with intentional ideas, plans, practices so that we're, we're actively involved in sharing this gospel. We're speaking to people about Jesus Christ. And then come what may, let's encourage each other not to give up, not to, not to stop, not to quit, not to be silent, but to just to go on because that is the, the command of our Lord. So let's pray. Lord, call us to intentional activity. Let us be filled with your Spirit, Lord, so that overflowing from our lives would come this desire that other people would know you, that others would be brought into your kingdom and worship Jesus Christ as the King. Show us, Lord, the next step in doing that. Lord, if we have become cold or apathetic, change us, Lord. Change our hearts. Renew us. Give us a holy zeal, Lord, to do your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.